We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also in studio with us today is Michael Boyden. He's the Managing Director of Taiwan Asia Strategy Consulting, and he also hosts the Taiwan Business Leaders Forum. Michael, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Good evening. This evening, we are back on our 8.30 time slot this week. Uh, we had been on the 10 p.m. time slot for the last couple of weeks, uh, but we're back to our usual time now and also our usual duration. So looking at about 25, 26 minutes here. On the show this week, we will, of course, be taking a look at the firestorm surrounding the unwarranted search and seizure of a civilian home by military police, which brought back some very dark memories for many in Taiwan this week. We'll also be talking about warnings issued over the past week from China that it will not continue normal relations with the DPP if the party does not reject independence. And we'll be rounding things out with a look at Taiwan's energy future, following comments this week from President-elect Tsai Ing-wen that hydrogen is one of the options her administration will consider. But first, we're going to have to return to a topic we've discussed before on this show, what to do with the KMT's bountiful but controversial assets. So do you give them away to members? Do you, you investigate them further? You know, sort out the good bits from the bad bits and keep the good bits? Uh, do you double down, maybe just... Use some of that money to buy a big gold-encrusted billboard with a middle finger to the world. A lot of options that the KMT has. Well, uh, when we discussed the issue just a few weeks ago, something along the lines of that last one, uh, I think, is what we were kind of all expecting here on the show. You know, it's a lot of money, difficult to give up. But uh, the more radical option of just giving it away, uh, nearly all of it away anyway, that option has now become a mainstream position among party elites. Uh, yesterday, the KMT caucus in the legislature called on the party headquarters to return some of those assets to the public. Uh, Gavin, tell us about what they were saying there. Yeah, this was the KMT legislative caucus, and it urged the party to donate its assets to charity or to the government, saying that such a move would be in response to public expectations. And the this statement was signed by 26 KMT lawmakers and it also had the support of several KMT heavyweights who include legis- former legislative speaker Wang Jingping, the KMT's policy head Lai Shu Bao and also legislative caucus whip Lin De Fu. Now, according to the statement released by the KMT caucus, the net value of the party's assets amounts to some 16.6 billion NT. Now, it says, obviously, it can't give all that away because it has to pay pensions to party members. So they'd be holding on to that particular They'd be holding chunk. on to that bit percentage. We'll get to the percentages in a minute. But, basically, the KMT caucus paper said that the KMT should take this 16.6 billion NT and after deducting the pensions payments, it should donate the remaining assets to charity groups or the government, and here's the crunch line, to help young people and the disadvantaged. All right. Of course, the party is also calling on the candidates running to head the KMT, of course, in the upcoming KMT chairpersonship election. And the KMT caucus yesterday said that it hopes all the candidates in that election can put this policy proposal 
in their platform of proposals and possible party reform packages. Well, we've already heard Hong Xiaoju's Ju's thoughts on this. We know that she's not for it. And but we also had Mr. Lee Shin, of course, last week. The, right. Who wanted simply to give the assets to party members. To party members. Yes, that would have worked out 30,000 NT, but he was calculating the total number at 10 billion NT. Mm-hmm. So obviously if he wins they'll be getting a bit more than 30,000 NT, which will probably make quite a few people happy. Kind of a different form of charitable donation, though. But we won't linger on that one. We talked about that last week. Now, according to the KMT, most of the party's 16.6 billion NT in assets is in the form of real estate. Now... Not liquid assets. Not liquid assets in real estate. Now, they're saying, this is the KMT saying this, 8 billion NT of the 16.6 billion is reserved for paying retired party employees. And also, this is the crunch one. This is the one that gets most people's back up. Providing funding for the preferential 18% interest rate on the savings of party members. Uh-huh. This has called problems before, this 18% interest rate. Because that's a big, you know, if you've got a bit of money and you'll get an 18% interest rate on your savings... It's going to beat the stock market by quite yeah. a bit. It's mm. better than Joe Public. Really now, the, although the KMT has said 8 billion goes towards this, leaving just over 8 billion for to be distributed to the young and disadvantaged. Now, according to today's Liberty Times, this number <laughs> is somewhat incorrect. Mm. Because according to the Liberty Times, after the KMT deducts all the pensions payments and the funding for the preferential 18% interest rate on savings, it is left with 2.1 billion, which is not much. When you start with 16.6 and you're left with 2.1, that's the type of thing your mother would look at you and go, what have you done with your money? Indeed. I have to wonder at the timing of this. I, let, let, let's uh, assume that the, the the motive has some some elements of altruism in it anyway. But uh, shouldn't they have really been doing this before the uh, the recent legislative elections uh, mm. uh, as a, a gesture to towards the public? Might have probably wouldn't have gotten victory, but might have helped a bit. But um, on the eighteen uh, percent, is that is it not the case that um, certain classes of civil servants, military, teachers, and so on, get a, get this preferential rate. And in fact, this charge has been levied even at uh, Miss Tsai herself, because she was formerly uh, a government official. So I, I believe so. The KMT in looking after their retired employees in this respect are not doing anything. Um, groundbreaking they they are just following what is an seems to be an established protocol Mm. but not a very actually respected protocol if you happen to be jobo member of the public no but it's all right if you're a military or a teacher yeah it's absolutely fine yeah Yeah, absolutely fine so i i I think i don't i don't see that as really uh much of a bone for the opposition to uh, the the DPP to chew on if they want to go after the KMT on this. So you're saying that you'd want to see them go even further and give up on some of these preferential programs? uh, No, I don't think so. Um, I I think... It's not an issue at all at this point. I don't think it's that that important an issue. I think what what is the the issue here is why are they doing this now? and what uh, advantage do they hope to gain from it? Because 
although one might like to think it's an altruistic gesture, this is politics after all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. I guess they're doing it now yeah, in part yeah. because they know that as soon as the as soon as May clocks around and the DPP administration is fully in power, the issue of the county assets yes. is going mm. to keep coming up. They're every, going to be dealing it on somebody else's terms. Well, yeah, on someone right. else's terms. Mm. And every time anyone opens their mouth in the legislature for the UN, the county are going to be thinking, good God, don't mention the assets. Don't mention the assets. We're talking about something else today. Not the assets again. Right. Now, the other issue here is, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about these assets. Uh, this is only part of a much broader thing, which is truth and reconciliation, uh, which Tsai has, of course, said is going to be a part of uh, her admi- administration's platforms is going into the, those old records, finding out examples of human rights abuses and bringing them to the fore once again. Uh, so this has led to some skepticism from certain opposition parties uh, that this is perhaps a way to kind of throw those efforts off track. Kind of, you know, the KMT will then be able to say, we've gotten right on this issue. Now all that other stuff, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, obviously, we don't know what the real motivations are here, so not for us to speculate, but that uh, view is out there. And uh, speaking of truth and reconciliation, that also kind of takes us nicely to the next topic that we want to talk about this week, that being the unwarranted military police search of a civilian's home, which has raised the specter of martial law-era repression for many in Taiwan and led to calls for reform of the military and even removal of the Minister of Defense from his post. Uh, Now, revelations about this search surfaced last weekend after the daughter of the man whose home was investigated uh, surfaced uh, online, where she posted an account of the incident. Uh, So this story is already in probably its third or fourth news cycle. I think most of our uh, listeners are familiar with it. But Gavin, quickly, just to catch up any of our listeners who maybe have gotten behind on this one, to catch them up on exactly what we're talking about, uh, tell us about the original incident. Now, this search occurred on February 19th. Yes, it was based on allegations by the daughter of a man called Mr. Wei. Now, Mr. Wei was allegedly, according to the military police command, trying to sell documents related to the white terror era online. Somehow this got reported to the military police and the uh, apparently Major General Zhao Tai Chuan, the head of the military security division, apparently ordered the mil- Taipei military police station chief, Colonel Lu Zheng Feng, to basically go to this man's house. Now, the story goes that the military police met the chap outside his house at an MRT station, I believe, one of the stories says. And he agreed to let the military police enter his abode, where he apparently voluntarily gave over the documents to the military police. He signed a, a consent he signed, waiver. Apparently, that's another thing. Apparently, he, he did sign a consent waiver, and the military police have said he did this, and he gave the documents to the military police. But now... The questions got raised when the fact that this man was a civilian. Now, the military Mm. police didn't take any civilian law enforcement officials with them or any prosecutors or anybody that wasn't involved with the military to search a civilian's home, which, well, in any country, that Mm. would be considered rather Mm. off, basically, yeah? Right. Now, the woman, the man's Mr. Way's daughter accused the military police of conducting an illegal search, whereas, like I said, the military police said he gave us his consent to do this. So it she wasn't, also, wasn't an illegal search, technically, according to the military police. She did raise, though, the possibility that perhaps this consent was given under some form of coercion. 
duress, possibly if you're surrounded by large men in boots and helmets, possibly carrying weapons, yes, the right. duress mm. could be considered, even if no duress was actually pushed by the military police. Mm. It could still be seen as duress. Anyway, the Premier has come out and he said that the actions of the military police command were inappropriate. The Defence Minister has been forced to apologise, saying that basically his office, the Defence Ministry, and civilian prosecutors are now looking into the incident and I believe the military incident, the military investigation into this should possibly wrap up as we're recording this, if not this weekend. All right. So uh, already working to address the situation. Uh, They've both been removed. The, the two chaps I mentioned, going back to them. Well, they the, were reposted. They were repo- Well, they were reposted to temporary service at the Army Command Headquarters. And those but, were the, 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 the two, individuals the, that kind of oversaw the search? Apparently, well, like I said, one was the head of the military security division mm. and the other one was the head of the Taipei Military Police Station. Now, as a result of this, like I've said, there's been apologies, but of course, certain politicians are asking for the military police to have their powers now limited. Right. And they also, there's been calls to abolish the Judicial Police Dispatching Act, which was set up during the martial law era. Let's uh, take that as a segue into the next topic that I want to get into and kind of just unpacking uh, how this incident caused the firestorm that it did this week. I mean, this has been really the, 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 the main story on the TV, on the front of the paper, every single day this week. Uh, and I think for some of our listeners who didn't grow up in Taiwan, uh, perhaps some of the historical sensitivity there might be somewhat bewildering. So, uh, of course, some of the issues involved here is the history of uh, military operation operating with impunity in Taiwan as, and operating as an extension of the government over the civilians in Taiwan. Uh, so that is certainly a track record here, uh, Michael. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I think uh, I, we we all thought we were done with all this sort of thing, uh, as you say, the military riding roughshod over civilian protocols, uh, and the the I, I believe it's called the the garrison command acting like a, 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 as a police force, mm. and so uh, anywhere else. Um, the, the in any other country, pretty much, um, the military was simply would not have been involved. It would have, would have been the civilian police who, who carried out any investigation were there to be any. So um, one has to wonder uh, what the motivation was in, in from in the military circles for to for them to undertake such an. Uh, egregious uh, breach of uh, of protocols. Right, and that's kind yeah. of the other question that's raised for a lot of people here is with all of these uh, truth and reconciliation proposals just over the horizon, uh, there, you know, there's... It makes really bad optics. It makes some people think, why are they trying to get rid of this guy's documents? What are they trying to hide? Mm. That's kind of the other issue at, at, at play here. There was, of course, controversy about the actual contents of the documents. Because while, while this chap, Wei's daughter, said they had to do with the White Terror era, the military police, a statement by the military police in two days after the search took place, said there was something to do with some confessions of Chinese sympathisers, that is, communist mm-hmm. Chinese, communist Chinese sympathisers. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that makes it even worse, if you see what I mean, because, of course, who were the people that were being questioned and why were they saying what they said? And were they actually communist sympathisers or were they just sort of being persecuted by the government back then? So, uh, well, OK, so this week, you know, Mayor Kerr came out and he kind of took the line that let's not overreact here. 
Uh, obviously, some kind of administrative mistake was made, but you can fix that in an administrative way. There's no reason to hyperventilate. There's no reason to rake the military over the coals because, after all, the military is a very important for Taiwan. It's national defense that we're talking about here. Uh, so w- what are your thoughts on the proper response uh, that Taiwan needs to take at this point? I mean, there are some proposals uh, at this point for limiting uh, the powers of military police. Is is that really the proper next step? I don't think so. I, I think uh, I, Mayor Kerf, I don't usually agree with what he says, but I think on this occasion he's right. Let's not overreact and blow this thing up out of proportion. Some people in the military took took too much upon themselves, exceeded their authority. They should be uh, subject to disciplinary procedures. Uh, I think it w- we would be getting into dangerous ground if the, it gets then opened up so that uh, the issue of the military police's powers, over, overall powers, as a, 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 an arm of the, of the Taiwan's armed forces, uh, are subject to some kind of review and become a, yet another political football. Because yeah. it's, it's while we're calling it the military police, it is in fact the constitutional army was involved in this. The guys with the white helmets, the nice uniforms that guard the presidential building. It was those chaps with the oh, white helmets. Yes, this really? is them. Yes, mm-hmm. and of course the constitutional army was created to deter any wayward ROC generals from having a coup. Mm. So, right. So lots of vestiges from the martial law era brings up a lot. This story does. So uh, we will have to see where those proposals go uh, if they're picked up when uh, the Thai administration takes power. But uh, for now, it's time to take a break. When we return, we're going to be taking a look at the rocky road ahead for cross-strait relations when Tsai takes office. And the even rockier road perhaps ahead for Taiwan's energy future that uh, we're facing down right now, actually. All of that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Michael Boyden. Up next, moving on to cross-strait relations and what seems to be a hardening of Beijing's bottom line. China's Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Strait's chairman, Chen Deming, announced over last weekend that China would only continue dialogue with President-elect Tsai and the DPP if the party rejects independence. Uh, Gavin, uh, what exactly was he saying there? Well, he was basically saying what Beijing has been saying all along, forever and ever and ever and ever, since basically the fish crawled out of the water. And that is... Taiwan has to adhere to the 1992 consensus or there is no dialogue, basically. Well, the DPP doesn't adhere to the 1992 consensus. It questions the 1992 consensus, unlike the KMT, which completely adheres to the 1992 consensus. And the key term here for uh, folks out there that aren't up to date on all the jargon, another piece of jargon is the one China policy. uh, And uh, that would basically be saying Taiwan... And there is only one China basically acknowledging that Taiwan is China, part of China, and that is just a a bridge too far for the DPP. That is the 1992 consensus. It's a tactic agreement between the two sides uh, to respect each other in the sense that they can both jump up and down and say, we are China, no, we are China, and they can both disagree on who is China, but then they have to agree on the fact that the other is China as well. 
So they can translate how they want to translate who is China. They basically. essentially agreed to agree that there is one China, yeah. but there can be different interpretations. Right, but that, that would yeah, be yeah. a bridge too far for the DPP. Yes. And when Chen Deming comes out with uh, all this stuff, I mean, is he pretty directly taking on the DPP's independence clause, the, the clause within their own party charter that says that uh, it is the stated goal of the party to achieve Taiwan independence. Is that what he's taking on there? Basically, because he's basically turned around a lot this week and he said that Beijing will not make any direct contact with the DPP unless the party changes the Taiwan independence clause in its party platform. Right. And Which, of course, the Beijing has been sort of opening up in open arms, greeting members of the KMT over the years. Beijing has met members of the DPP, but of course then the DPP has come to power now, so Beijing's going, oh, what can we do? And they've basically said that our attitude towards the DPP is clear and consistent, and Beijing will not contact the DPP directly until such time that the party changes the independence clause in its party platform and recognises the 1992 consensus. This is pretty interesting to me, because I did just a, a little tiny bit of reporting on... Uh, in 2014, it did come up uh, within the DPP to perhaps uh, scrap the so-called independence clause, uh, and it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, the proposal was out there, uh, but it met with a lot of pushback, and uh, the arguments from the people that were pushing back were saying, this is not really something that the DPP is pursuing right now. It's you know just a part of our... No, it's just, it's just written on a bit of paper. It's just written on a, a bit of paper. In an office somewhere. In an office somewhere. In a desk drawer, basically. Exactly. Yes. It's not even worth uh, the strife that it would produce within the party uh, to focus it on it right now. Uh, so, you know... If the party couldn't get rid of it before Tsai was in power, I think it's going to be even more difficult to get rid of it with Tsai in powers. Uh, so, I mean, is she really being painted into a bit of a, a corner here, uh, Michael? What's her maneuvering room on this? Well, she has some uh, some thinking to do on this issue, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure she's bending her mind to it. Um, what she has to do is to to somehow, in her inaugural speech, every word of which is going to be closely studied, to uh, to somehow skirt the issue, uh, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, so Chen Shui-bian managed to do this when when he was. I, I can't recall the details of his inaugural speech, but basically it was more about the the Taiwanese people standing up and so. On, and there was I don't think the the I word was even mentioned in his in his speech. It's all about the imagery. That's right. So and if you remember, the first thing he did. Uh, as president, the next morning, he was inaugurated on a Saturday. On the Sunday morning, he flew over in, in Air Force One to, uh, to Jinmen to, to shake hands with the troops at the front line, a very sort of a very Taiwanese thing to do. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, and I, I would expect Mr. Tsai to, to come up with a similar kind of uh, reassuring gesture so that, to say that, you know, that that independence is not on the front burner here. But it's going to be very, very difficult for her and for the, to get the party to agree to even sort of change the wording in the party's sort of manifesto, let alone scrap it altogether. Do you, but I guess, the, I guess the big question is, how serious is China when it comes out with these statements? I mean, uh, are, are, are they? Well, would I, it really be in China's interest to completely cut off ties no, with the DPP? And they won't. They're, but e even if they say, "Well, we're not going to contact uh, the DPP directly," there will still be indirect uh, right. contact through back channels. Yeah, 
there has to be, and, and they understand that. Yeah, so, but they are saying what they have to say at this point. Yeah, I think yeah, Beijing's yeah. belly aching at the moment yeah. because Tsai hasn't been inaugurated. They're going, oh, we've got, we've got three months of leeway. We can belly ache and rattle mm, our sabres mm, and mm, then mm. she'll be inaugurated. So get the, get the sabre rattling over and done with and then back to business right. as usual. Yeah. Which is basically what Beijing does every time the US sells Taiwan any weapon systems. It belly aches for several weeks and then it's all back to normal. This is a, a preemptive move by mm-hmm. the by the uh, Chinese administration to uh, lest the they've got to say something. So they, they, this is what they're saying: lest the DPP think that uh, if they don't say anything, it means that they implicitly accept yeah. that the DPP has this commitment in its manifesto and will talk about it at some other time. Yeah. So it's a preemptive move. Yeah. 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 Just in case anybody forgot that uh, China wasn't cool with Taiwan independence, good reminder right there. But then yeah. China wasn't invited to the election in January either, was it? Oh, they must have been forgotten. Oh, it was a long guest forgot, list. I forgot to invite them. <laughs> Do you think there'll be somebody from China at the inaugural? Ooh. Uh, probably not. <laughs> well, well, it should be interesting to see if there's many Chinese tourists here that week, of course. Well, that's been the other controversy recently. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Whether well, or not those uh, tourists will have been they, Will there be any at all yeah, yeah. Yeah. by then? Yeah. Well, if, I mean, if Tsai isn't even willing to show up at events with President Ma, uh, which uh, she hasn't been so far, um, having a representative from China probably also is not in the offing, right. would be my guess. And last up for our broadcast portion today, controversy over Taiwan's energy future found its way into the news in a bunch of different ways this week. The EPA anti-power came out on Wednesday to say that despite long-term reduction plans put forward last year by the executive yuan for carbon, power sector carbon emissions are likely to increase in the short term as the energy sector makes the slow transition to natural gas. So big changes there. Uh, Of course, a bit of pressure in the background uh, related to the uh, pledges to switch away from nuclear power. Uh, But the timeline on that might be even tighter than we thought. The Atomic Energy Council announced the operations at two nuclear power plants may need to be suspended well ahead of schedule. Uh, Actually, as soon as June next year, when their spent fuel rod pools are full. Uh, Looks like they're just running out of space to put that fuel. And once they run out of that space, since we haven't decided uh, where else in Taiwan we can put that stuff, they're just going to have to shut down. So really a a quickly advancing timeline in terms of uh, shutting down the nuclear, trying to find alternatives for it. And Gavin, this week, uh, to underscore all of that, uh, one of those reactors ran into a bit of trouble. Yes, this was the reactor number two at the nuclear power plant. That's number one nuclear power plant in New Taipei's Sherman District. That was forced to suspend operations yesterday after the reactor suddenly stopped functioning. The Atomic Energy Council have said it remains unknown when the reactor can be restarted as that depends on the results of an investigation into the problem. But Taipei Power has said that there is no risk of a nuclear leak. Of course, this does come. This happened Thursday and, of course, today is the fifth anniversary anniversary of the Fukushima meltdown in Japan. And of course, in Taipei tomorrow, there's a series of anti-nuclear rallies timed. Obviously, and this is timing for Taipei power is not so good here. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of things to be thinking about right now. A lot of things that this underscores, I would say. Uh, And uh, another little bit of news that we got this week, just to add to the list, uh, is President-elect Tsai said that one solution she would consider 
is hydrogen. You know, a lot of different forms of energy to be considered here. Now she's put hydrogen on the list as well. Uh, at this point, uh, this has reached a level of complexity that I, I, I think is beyond uh, myself and Gavin here. Uh, not hydrogen experts by any means. So to help us sort all of this out, we've got uh, Mark Buckton on the line. He is a Japan-based reporter who covers East Asia's energy sector. So he's going to help us out with this. Uh, Mark, thanks for being here. Uh, no problem. Thank you, for, for, thank you for having me. Now, the comments that Tsai made there uh, were actually an address to the International Conference on Hydrogen Energy down in Kaohsiung. Uh, so was this a serious proposal that she was putting forward, or was she maybe just making nice with the audience in front of her? Um, well, I would say that the, the best way to describe it would be lip service. Um, hydrogen has a future. It does have a future, but not at the moment, not in, not in uh, this uh, administration's lifetime. And quite probably, we're talking 30 or 40 years down the line, it might be nice to sort of set the ball rolling in Taiwan. Uh, the ball is rolling in Japan and in other countries in Asia, particularly China. But the, the infrastructure is just not there for anything to be realistic in the next 20, 30, 40 years yet. All right. So uh, just a bit of lip service there. Uh, now, you have uh, the, the main thing that you cover. One of your main specialties is nuclear, very apropos to today. And uh, the green energy sectors, since uh, the government by all accounts, is knocking nuclear out as an option. Uh, what other options, just kind of lay it out for us, uh, does Taiwan have to cover its energy needs over the next decade or so? Well, I think um, the Taiwanese situation is, is of course, made more complicated by the, uh, the cross-strait relations with uh, China. And LNG, you know, liquefied nuclear, um, sorry, liquefied gas, the, the main so source of energy for the island in terms of powering the, the power stations that are non-nuclear. That is, that is a risk, because Taiwan relies so heavily on, on the gas being imported, mainly from the Middle East, that any, any sort of escalation of the situation with China, and because Taiwan is an island, it could be cut off almost immediately by you know, Chinese naval forces. So Taiwan really needs to sort of develop its own, own energy system within the island, renewables are the perfect way forward. But again, the infrastructure is very limited at the moment. Um, I was down at a wind farm just north of Taichung a couple of months ago, and over half the turbines were just, you know, not operational. So Taiwan really needs to invest heavily in, in its renewables. Um, solar would be fantastic. Um, solar placement would be an issue because, you know, a lot of people are of the NIMBY mind. NIMBY means... Yeah not in my backyard. Um, wind power, again, it, it looks ugly, but it's a, it's a way forward. Um, offshore would be great, and only about two or three months ago, Taiwan signed some new deals with uh, Danish and German companies to build offshore wind farms um, in, in the strait. Now, that's not really advanced yet, but that's, that's the way forward for Taiwan, um, to sort of take them away from nuclear, I think, renewables all the way, solar and wind. But then, of course, uh, the challenges there uh, is uh, the same challenges faced by countries around the world is, as you mentioned, where do you put it? Of course, there's been 
uh, already protests about wind farms in Taiwan, uh, the kind of NIMBY mentality that you were talking about a second ago. And then how do you store that energy? Uh, Battery technology has not quite advanced to a point, and also uh, the power lines have not quite advanced to a point where uh, this is an entirely uh, solved problem. It's still difficult to store that power at night and whatnot. Uh, Is there a path forward for Taiwan in that regard? I, I do I do think so. Um, Japan is, is by far the most advanced nation in Asia at the moment with um, solar infrastructure and linking that into the, into the national grid. Taiwan is, uh, at the very least, a decade behind that. Now, Taiwan does have, of course, you know, it's, it's well-known for its um, tech-savviness. It's, it's a well-known tech-savvy country. And as you said, storage. Storage is a, is a massive problem at the moment. Japan is producing more power than it can use. And while that seems like a good problem the power that's lost every single day could be stored in, in large industrial scale batteries things you know the size of a house could be used to store energy ship the power over to taiwan for example and taiwan could be importing what is effectively renewable power um, it would reduce the need for the gas it would reduce the need for nuclear power but um, taiwan would have to import that but as I said, the, the, the battery situation, there are no major industrial advancements in, in battery technology recently. Mm. So if Taiwan got on that situ- you know, got on that and started trying to develop the the battery technology whilst importing, Taiwan could be, you know, really carving a niche for itself in the global renewables market as a major producer of um, industrial scale batteries. Mm. So, uh, Michael, now, uh, we, we heard there perhaps a path forward on uh, green energy and renewables for Taiwan. Uh, is that what you see as the most promising uh, energy future for Taiwan over the next decade or so? Well, it, it's a, it is a promise, but it's a somewhat limited one. I, I don't see that uh, renewables are ever going to be the, the primary so, uh, energy source for Taiwan. It's simply not practical, for, and uh, Mark has given us some of the reasons why. Mm. So... Uh, fossil fuels and um, natural gas shipped in, in in LNG liquefied form is the for Taiwan is the fuel of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that is what uh, CPC, the state-owned energy company, is is gearing up to do. They are now preparing, are planning to build the country's third uh, LNG processing facility in the north of Taiwan, where most of the demand is. Uh, <clears throat> the um, the uh, he, Mark put his finger on a, a potential problem in that uh, China could interdict the import of um, of LNG and or other energy sources by uh, by ship. Um, absent that threat, uh, that is going to be uh, the the energy use emphasis on Taiwan going forward. Nat- natural gas, but let's not remember that actually. Uh, the coal is still the uh, generate uh, accounts for about over fifty percent of the ele- Taiwan's electricity generation. Mm. And, yummy, uh, yummy coal. Yeah, uh, natural gas about thirty uh, something percent. So uh, nuclear is about eighteen percent, eighteen twenty percent at the moment. Mm. Uh, but uh, the the nuclear just uh, uh, aside on the on the nuclear issue. It looks like the fourth nuclear is dead uh, now mm-hmm. with the advent of a DPP government right. pledged to a, what they call a nuclear-free homeland. Mm-hmm. The, uh, as we've seen, we're already getting problems uh, with the existing three nuclear 
power stations having to shut down because there's no more space for the spent fuel rods and, and other technical an- issues. Another important point is that yeah. whenever they're closed, you need a, some legislative review to open them up again. That's right. And so the politics is going to play a big role in how yes, long they is. stay open. Uh, and the thing is, there's no plan B. Uh, it, the uh, the fourth nuclear was supposed to pick up the load as the existing, the older three were gradually phased out between mm-hmm. now and 2025. That won't happen. So, mm-hmm. but where's Plan B? There isn't one. Yeah. So, 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 Mark, uh, wondering if you can pick up on that point. Uh, we're, we're hearing from Michael that uh, natural gas is really going to be an important part of the energy mix for the foreseeable future. Is that what you see there as well? Absolutely. Um, if I could just mention something that um, Michael um, talked about there, um, no plan B. Um, of course, you know, you guys are on the ground there in Taiwan, you know there's no plan B. Um, plan B could quite simply be Japan. Mm. Um, I know the new administration is looking at getting closer to Japan. Japan is looking at work, working closer with Taiwan um, across the board. But Japan is a destination. It's kind of ironic we're talking about it today because five years ago today, of course, we had the... Uh, the problems um, up at Fukushima. Um, just north of Fukushima, a couple of hundred kilometers north, is um, one of the world's largest storage facilities for spent rods. And um, countries from as far away as the UK, France, regularly ship all their waste over here to Japan. And why could Taiwan not do the same? You know, and um, you know, and, and just free up its um, reactors to keep on working. That's one option. Um, for a potential plan B that I've not heard anybody discuss, nobody in Japan, nobody in Taiwan. Um, with the, the the gas situation, yeah, gas is second to coal at the moment, but coal is a major problem in Taiwan. Um, there is a coal-powered station just north, I think, just to the north of Taichung, mm. and that particular power station, they put out as much CO2 as the country of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And that is going to destroy any Taiwanese efforts, you know, um, CO2 trading, uh, carbon, uh, carbon dioxide trading. Um, Taiwan will always fall behind other, other nations in the area because of that particular station. And once that's shut down, uh, once Taiwan moves away from coal and, and over-reliance on coal, and again, most of that's being shipped in by sea, from mostly from Australia, once Taiwan moves away from that, they can focus on the, on the gas, and that's a relatively clean sort of energy source. But then prices, you know, will fluctuate. I, I just think Taiwan needs to get its own own energy resources in place. Um, it will take time. It will, it will still be going on many years down the line, uh, probably many administrations down the line. But gas is the interim way forward. Coal has got to be done away with as soon as possible. Mm. I think nuclear does have a plan B option, but nobody's talked about it yet. All right. So we're going to be looking for the moves uh, made on that in the very next couple of months coming down the line. But we have been speaking right now to Mark Buckton. He is a Japan-based reporter covering East Asia's energy sector. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right. And that is it for the broadcast portion of our show. But for our podcast listeners, as always, we've got a bonus story for you today. And as always, it's Somewhat on the lighter end of things, we're going to be talking about good old Mickey D's, which found a way to stir up a bit of controversy with their latest ad campaign. Uh, But, you know, depending on how you feel about it, potentially uh, for a good cause. Uh, Gavin, uh, what happened here? Oh, the ad's for McCafe, which is apparently McDonald's sort of upmarket 
branches here. You get reg- <laughs> you get regular McDonald's where you get your burgers, and you get McCafe places where you get your your crepes your and your coffee. Fancy basically. McDonald's. Your fancy McDonald's. This uh, was an advert. Overpriced cakes. Yeah. <laughs> you, oh, right, there we go. You can so barely over- put those words cakes, together. According to Michael. Anyway, it's from McCafe. Now, the TV commercial shows a young boy, and he's gay, and the point of the advert is he comes out to his father by writing this on a cup. Basically, and it's very subtle. There's no, there's no big song and dance. There's no, no campness about it. That even the most staunchest right wing of would person would actually take offence at, really. But unfortunately, the Alliance of Taiwan Religious Groups for the Protection of Family has taken offence at this incredibly inoffensive advert. Innocuous, even. Basically, yeah. I mean, no one says anything. What's the what's one word in it, isn't there? Bah. Father. That's it. There's one word in this commercial spoken. Bah. But the, apparently, the Alliance of Taiwan Religious Groups doesn't like this either. And according to the group... The commercial makes people feel polluted and McDonald's Taiwan is miseducating children on sexual behaviour and openly promoting gay issues. Now, this religious group is calling for a boycott of McDonald's and I'm sure its members will boycott McDonald's. Not that McDonald's is worried about that. McDonald's makes a lot of money anyway. And this is not the first time that McDonald's has been at the forefront of gay-friendly marketing because it did the same thing in France in 2010. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Michael, are, are you one to watch uh, Taiwan's advertisements in general? Is this a, a world under your purview? I do actually watch oh, quite do. a lot of uh, Taiwan's advertisements. I've been in several of them, and so oh, have I, you? I have, yes, I have. Uh, uh, playing playing what role? Oh, may playing I various roles. The most fun one was being. Um, uh, gosh, so, sorry, having a senior moment. Can't, uh, famous designer at Chanel, the the guy with the big shades and the. Um, so yeah, be, uh, played several roles in in TV commercials. So I have an interest in in sort of keeping up with them. Uh, <laughs> so I what I, I but I didn't see this one on the TV. I I watched it. Uh, it. Gavin sent me the clip and I watched it on the on my phone. It's very innocuous, uh, uh, very low key, yeah. and uh, the fact that there's no dialogue about this. That it's they all, write it on the cup. They, they write it on the cup. You know, um, so. Uh, but I, I I have to wonder why they are why they feel they need to put this out. Yeah. To go to the considerable expense uh, and trouble of of having this ad and and putting it is it to suggest that their McCafe are are gay friendly? Right. But I I wouldn't have thought that was an issue anyway here. You yeah, how, how 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 can a collection of chemicals that are probably bad for you yeah. be friend, gay friendly or gay unfriendly? Yeah. I don't think they're uh, capable of that. So, uh, one anyway. Uh, but having said that, having you know raised the question, well, why do they feel they need to do this anyway? Uh, they have done it, and uh, it, it. I don't see it's harming anybody. And basically, I think the the uh, the people who have been vociferously protesting about the ad are overreacting yeah, and of course. Uh, of course there's not going to be any boycott of mcdonald's uh, especially in, since i mean if we look at the, the word choice of the father he didn't say he didn't say i support it he said well nung jia show i can accept, accept it. it yes i mean it's not, not it's not, not an, quite the same thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly an yeah, open-armed right, right. embrace right, right there right. so okay so that there's our non-issue of the week gavin yeah yeah hopefully i think the father should have just shrugged his shoulders and goes 
Who cares? <laughs> yeah. That went even simpler, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> doesn't doesn't matter to me, and also doesn't matter to this particular coffee beverage that we're drinking right now. All right. Well, uh, leave that issue for another day. Wrapping up the show right now. Uh, that is it for Taiwan this week. Please do join us again next time. The show broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and also uh, just recently getting into SoundCloud. If you search ICRT there on SoundCloud, you can find it there as well. Quick question for our listeners. Uh, last couple of weeks, we have had the show on at 10 p.m. Nice thing about the 10 p.m. slot is we can go as long as we want. The show can be uh, up to 45 minutes long, so we have time to explore a lot of these issues in just a little bit more depth, get into some of the things that uh, we don't have time for in the 8.30 slot. So want to get your take. Uh, how many of you out there would uh, feel left behind if we left the 8.30 slot for the 10 p.m.? For, for you 8.30 listeners out there, uh, would you prefer to stay here, or uh, should we just go to the 10 and take advantage of that extra time? If you have a feeling about this, if you want to keep it at the 8.30, please do let me know. You can reach me, keith at icrt.com.tw. Again, that's keith at icrt.com.tw. Or send us a message on Facebook. If we don't hear anything, probably just going to go over to 10. So do make your opinion heard. Signing off from the ICRT studio then, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Hey, good evening. And Michael Boyden. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Make up face.